Hello guys and gals, this is Kim C, and you're listening to The Year of Underrated Stephen King, a podcast that doesn't focus too much on the movie adaptations, but more on the books that made them. So welcome everyone to episode 13, lucky or unlucky 13, I'll leave that for you to decide, but I'm thrilled to present our second short story collection on the podcast, Just After Sunset. So this one is a ton of fun and I can't wait to dig into it with you. We have 13 stories to coincide with our 13th episode. It was written in 2008 and in the American hardcover we have a little under 367 pages. So nice lengthy chunk of writing there. So this one is a lot of fun because we have the construction written around post Lisi's story. So King writes that he was actually on tour promoting Lisi's story a little bit while he's composing this collection. Um, What's also neat is this collection was really composed with intention. In 2006, he was approached by the editor of the Best American Short Story Series, which is an awesome anthology if you've never explored it, but um, she asked if he would participate and be a guest editor, to which he happily agreed, and I think that experience kind of lit a little fire under him in terms of revisiting the short story form and giving him a passion to experiment again and maybe relearn and try out a few things that he hadn't in quite a while. And so I think he really does that with this collection because he says that in about a two-year succession, he composes these 13 stories pretty much back to back. And I think that he knew he wanted to do short stories, whereas in Everything's Eventual and some of the other collections, I think those are more of like a hodgepodge where he's just sort of grabbing at random Uh, stories that he's written and uh, placed here and there, but Just After Sunset seems like a cohesive work where he is in a zone with a capital Z and really uh, writing these short stories with intention. And it's really cool to see, guys. I think it um, definitely works and accomplishes quite a bit. Uh, One of my favorite stories uh, in this collection that I cannot wait to share with my students because, as the young people say, this story is fire (laughs) with a capital F, my friends. Um, So Harvey's Dream is just literary magazine gold. It's so gorgeous and I'm going to share a chunk of it in the next section with you, but stories like Harvey's Dream are so lyrical and tight and the writing is so sexy and it's accomplishing so much by saying so little that we're really just seeing a master and his brushstrokes with that one. So I love, I love the fact that we're just seeing pure talent in this collection. What's also really fun is in the introduction to this uh, collection, King writes, he sort of reminds the reader that short stories are really where it all started for he and Tabitha. In the mid-70s, they were a young married couple, they're young parents, they're working just, you know, these dead-end jobs strapped for cash, and so King is churning out these stories 
and selling them to men's magazines for just extra cash. And he's putting them out in this feverish breakneck pace. He's not really revisiting them or rewriting them or really thinking about them at all after he sends them off. He's just really cashing the checks they produce. And so over the years, he kind of lost the short story urgency or um, passion, I guess, and he starts creating some of our beloved toe-breaker novels that we have in the late 70s and 80s. Um, but this is where this collection, he's kind of explaining to the reader that this experience with the Best American Short Stories series, as well as post Lisi's story, he really wanted to challenge himself and put on that old pair of pants and kind of relearn or reteach himself a few things about the power of the short story form. And what I love so much about the short stories is they are not easy, guys. Like, short stories are a challenge, and he relishes that challenge, and that's what's so great about Stephen King. I mean, one of the many millions of things we'll talk about here in the podcast, but what's so great about Mr. King is the fact that, A, he's still writing. He could have retired 20-plus years ago. B, he challenges himself. He's in a race with himself. Like, he's on the top of this mountain by himself, but he keeps climbing. He keeps climbing, and to the joy of all of us readers, which is great. But what's awesome is he, and C, I should say, he loves the craft of writing, and you see that so abundantly in these short story collections, which is why we're going to be spending um, a lot of time with them in this podcast, because I think Think that's where we really see writing treasure. We really see the craft in its glory and full form and I'm thrilled to talk about it with you guys as well as I think with the short stories, we are really able to see that Mr. King is much bigger than genre fiction. He's just a fiction master, and this is where we see it. So one, uh, what's also really fun in addition to Harvey's dream that I mentioned, which is just so sexy, I can't wait to share more of that story with you, but he includes one of the super rare vintage ones that he sold to one of those men's magazines, which is called The Cat from Hell, which was published over 40 years ago. Ago, and I think it was in Cavalier, which is, I don't know if that's like a pinup magazine or what, but apparently Cavalier published it in the, in the 70s. And that one is just vintage and fun. You can tell <laughs> he wrote it for money. Um, it's pulpy and hilarious. Also creepy and gory, and the ending is just kind of, you just laugh. I laughed. I don't know if I should have laughed, but I laughed. Um, I'm a huge cat person. We'll talk more about that a little bit later in terms of how it influenced my reading of this story, but it's great. So we have a little bit of a mixed bag where we're able to see where it all began for King and and how some of these stories he was really just writing to get paid, but he's still so good and they're fun and still stand up today, even after 40 years. So what's also a lot of fun about this collection is usually in the short story volumes, we have each story will have a little blurb from King and it's so much fun. He'll talk about 
where he was when he was writing it, what inspired it, what was sort of going on, and it's very meaningful and I think it creates more of an intimate connection with the reader as well as an intimate space on the story's birth and creation and all the things uh, regarding its composition. So I love that, but what he did with this collection, which was very unique, is he put all of the blurbs and all of the prefaces at the very back of the book. And at first I, I was really curious about that, but I kind of respect why he did it toward the end. Um, I enjoy that he kind of just wanted the reader to enjoy each story as it comes. Uh, whereas in previous collections, like Everything's Eventual, we have a, a blurb at the front. And I think when you read that blurb, it may or may not influence you to either skip it and come back to it or dive in right away. And so he creates that mystery where he just wants you to approach each new story as a brand new mysterious thing and you just dive in accordingly. But I like that he put them at the back. There was a couple times I sneaked a peek and I read um, the blurb beforehand, but on the ones I didn't, I actually enjoyed the experience a little bit more reading the preface after the story was done because it kind of made the story resonate a little deeper. For example, uh, there's one story in the collection that we'll be talking about called The Things They Left Behind, and it's a very lovely, haunting uh full of it's very somber in tone and it's a post 9-11 narrative about life in new york city after the towers fell and when i read the blurb after the story was um finished i realized that this was written a month after the the terrorist attack on 9-11 and so it's very fresh in its grief in its anger in its misunderstanding and just the collective feelings of horror for the country is really the pulse that's in this story so things like that were very cool in terms of the construction and structure of this collection and the way he kind of positions the reader to have an even deeper experience without maybe us realizing it. So very, very unique collection. Uh, overall, I really enjoy kind of what he's doing in this um, in this um, set of stories. So as in our last investigation uh, for this episode, I'm going to spend the bulk of my focus on what's working and what's not. Uh, there are a couple of flat tires, I'll call them, or a couple areas of this collection where I did have a few problems or... Uh, areas of speculation where I'd like to discuss with all of you guys. Um, I'm also going to have a chunk of what's unique and I'll include some text excerpts that I felt were just beautiful and really want to share with you. And then toward the end as we make our way into final thoughts I will mention a few standout characters that are a little fun but the majority of the content is going to be in uh, what's working, what's not, as well as what's unique about this collection. Um, and then um, we'll uh, round it out with those. I'm not going to include any spoilers of any endings of the story. So if you have not read this collection yet, 
you will be safe knowing that I'm not going to reveal any endings. However, I am going to talk about the stories, their characters, some of the main plot points. So if you want to be completely in the dark, please save this episode for a later time. But if you have read a few stories out of this collection or you've read this collection in general already, uh, tag along with me and let's revisit some of these stories and go down memory lane on some of the reveals. I may hint at an ending or kind of give an indication of what goes down, um, but again, just uh, listener beware, caveat emptor, or, or buyer beware. Uh, I'm going to do my ultimate best to not uh, all out reveal the ending of a story, but we're going we're gonna to tiptoe. We're going to tiptoe a little bit um, around some of that because with these short stories, sometimes when we discuss the, the whole um, start to finish and uh, dissect what's working, it sneaks in there a little bit. But I'm going to do my absolute best to not include any spoilers and ruin it for you guys. Having said that, uh, let's go ahead and head in to what's unique about this collection just after sunset. Okay, folks, let's first watch the sunset go down together by looking at what's unique in this collection. So I have two categories that I feel represent the themes and recurring ideas that I see in this collection. And the one that I really enjoyed was um, the exploration of the afterlife. In this body of work, we have four stories that really tackle Stephen King's ideas of the afterlife in different ways, and they're all experimental. There's two that kind of go together, but for the most part, they're asking different questions of the reader, and it seems like Stephen King himself is asking his own questions, which is really interesting. So the very first story we have in the collection is called Willa, and Willa is the wife of David, and they are a couple who is wandering around a train station, and there's several people waiting for the train with them, and Willa's vanished, and David goes off to find her, and she's at a sort of roadside bar um, off the train tracks in some desolated Wyoming town is uh, from what I can remember. What we come to find out in the narrative is that Willa and David are both dead and Willa is the one who sort of knew it all along and has to explain it to David as well as to the other people. She's accepted it and understanding of it, but they all seem to be in this kind of limbo-esque environment where they're waiting for a train, but the train's not coming. And Willa sees through the veil of their reality in the fact that the, um, train station is condemned. It's actually not in service. And once uh, she explains this, David starts to see it too. So what's really interesting with that is 
I hate to use the word ghost because I think when I say ghost, um, that's the trouble with genre fiction and this is a whole can of worms I'm going to try my best to delicately navigate around. But ghost is such a strong word um, because I think they... Uh, the uh, genre and the term itself has its own preconceived ideas. You know, everyone has uh, has these actual physical ideas of what a ghost looks like, sounds like, is like, and so I don't really want to use the word ghost, but I will kind of hint that you know, Willa and David are most definitely uh, seemingly human and conscious in this afterlife. And so um, I I really enjoy that tale because there's a lot of ambiguity and a lot of mystery in all four of these. The second one that's also a dealing with a little confusion, much like Willa and David are in the story of Willa, is a really short little tale. I think it's about six pages long, and this one really shined bright for me with its sort of interesting concept. The The story's called New York Times at Special Rates, which the title is very strange, but has great significance toward the latter end of the story. But um, it's about a woman who I forgot to write her name down. Um, her husband's name is James. Uh, Annie, that's it. Annie, uh, a woman named Annie, uh, gets a phone call. She's just out of the shower. She gets a phone call, and it's her husband, James. And this seems perfectly innocent and not very relevatory at all. However, uh, the reader quickly finds out that James died in a plane crash three days earlier. So she's getting a phone call from the afterlife. And what's interesting is James is kind of confused and he too finds himself in a kind of railway station um very much a place that he describes it looks like grand central station and uh he has some news from the future for annie saying there's the our old bakery i don't want you to go back there anymore and um that one kid that used to clean our gutters he's gonna break his neck one day um kind of random very confusing for annie um and annie herself is kind of in shock she doesn't know if she's just lost her mind she's so grief-stricken um the phone call doesn't last very long because uh james's cell phone is has no battery so she hears these terrible beeps on the other end and it quickly cuts off and so it kind of reshapes her entire life and in the next few pages we find out some of the things that james told her actually did come to pass and so but what's interesting is there's not necessarily fear or hope or love or you know some of the things we are maybe hoping to see in an afterlife narrative but there's confusion and there's perplexity and strangeness and maybe a little bit of hope but um new york times at a special rate was really one of those stories that was short enough and sweet enough to keep me thinking about it and that's for me the mark of a good short story is when it's done and I'm still there. My mind is still there. My curiosity is still there. So I really enjoy that Stephen King is delicately tiptoeing around what his 
thoughts are in regards to us going on. In the author's notes at the end of the collection, he does mention um, with some of these stories, he calls himself a romantic and he says, you know, his he doesn't necessarily prescribe to any religious um, notions or ideas of the afterlife, but you could tell and quite literally he says, you know, being a romantic, he believes in love and he believes that we go on and that there's good stuff, there's more. So that's kind of really intriguing and it's such a, a neat bag of experimental material to work with. Um, the other two stories where we kind of explore the afterlife a little bit, this one's a little bit more um, dealing with the miraculous, but toward the end of the collection we have a story called Ayana. And this one is kind of asking slash proposing the question if what if the miraculous could be paid forward? What if death could be delayed a little bit? Um, and what if you had the power to maybe assist with delaying it? So we have um, a little black girl named Ayana who visits a very sick man and she kisses him on the cheek and this sick man uh, gets several more years of life and feels better and is healed and um, his son witnessed all this and Ayana and her, the person who she was with, basically these mysterious sort of messengers accompany his son to pay that miraculous um, miracle forward, for lack of a better word, and that story, another really perplexing one that asks a lot of good questions, but it really reminded me, if you guys remember these films from the late 90s, they were way ahead of their time, uh, in my opinion, but if you guys remember Meet Joe Black, um, starring Brad Pitt and Anthony Hopkins, and I think her name is Claire Foy, I think. Uh, maybe Claire something, I'm forgetting her last name. Uh, that's another one where death is just this very mysterious yet kind of romantic idea um, where the, the viewer just has so many questions, but it's handled in a very elegant way. And then the other movie that this story kind of made me think of is City of Angels that had Meg Ryan and Nicolas Cage. I think that was out in 97. That, that movie also, by the way, side note, has one of the best movie soundtracks ever, by the way. Um, if you're a 90s kid, you should get your hands on that. Um, but though both of those films sort of treat the afterlife and angels and death in not a haunting, scary way, but in a peaceful, perplexing, curious way, and I think that's what we see in these stories. Um, the last one is, in, is probably the most delicate examination of the afterlife. I did mention it a little bit in the introduction. Um, it's called The Things They Left Behind. And this one is the post 9-11 narrative uh, about a man who woke up on 9-11 and decided to not go to work and just take a sick day because he just wanted to. And he's racked with survivor's guilt and he has these items from his co-workers that were made made their way into his life and in his home and he can't get rid of them and they kind of are haunting him in a way but this story really looks at survivor's guilt and 
the emotional weight of life and a life and the weight of memory uh, of what we leave behind and like the heaviness of that significance and it's really quite beautiful it's very poignant and I really enjoy that story because the tone is a little all over the place there are moments of somber sort of quiet reflection there's humor and then there's a little bit of frightening uh, aspects to it where the tone sort of peaks in mystery because these items hold on to the past so much and they don't allow um, the narrator to move forward. Uh, he tries to get rid of these items. Some of the items are um, a penny uh, in, um, what do they call it? I forget, one of those, uh, basically it's a penny frozen in this clear sort of, um, I'll think of it in just a second, but uh, there's an Alice in Wonderland statue, there's a conch cell, there's a baseball bat, these are just random items from his time at an insurance company, from company picnics, and these items are there in his life and he tries to get rid of them and they he can't, and the people who he passes along he passes them to also have haunting memories of the people they belong to so it's a it's a mixed narrative in the happy sad mysterious sort of tonal shifts throughout but um, all around incredibly enjoyable and asking big questions about what's beyond and what's there for us but none of them leave you with a frightening vibe which is pleasant it's nice it's nice to look at um, the afterlife in a kind of peaceful sifting through the sand where you're kind of just um, maybe curious about it. So I really enjoy all four of those stories and uh, what Stephen King is exploring and asking the reader with the idea of life beyond death. So really, really enjoyed it. So my second category that I feel is very prevalent in this collection is what I'm calling the extreme physical. Because oh my goodness, boys and girls, do we physically just feel the pain in this book. Uh, we have a ton of stories that really put the human body through a gauntlet of experience. So I have five stories that I have listed here that are just like, oh man, we, we're covered in bruises and blood, my friends. So um, one of the first ones and one of my favorites in the collection, which I'm going to be talking a lot more a little bit later on in the episode, is The Gingerbread Girl. And this one's a lot of fun. It's uh, reminiscent of Lisey's story in a little bit, uh, in little ways, given the fact that our bad guy is once again named Jim, very much like Jim Dooley. Um, but in uh, Gingerbread Girl, I'm gonna go more into the actual details of the story in the next section, but we have uh, our main character, Emily, begins running and so we really get to experience her physical transformation of what running is doing to her body in terms of gaining strength, gaining endurance, the sort of mental blank canvas that happens once she runs and all of her her pain and her sorrow and her frustration just kind of disappear as she runs mile after mile. So that was super enjoyable. Um, so we're, we're experiencing this uh, very physical exertion with the character with Emily's journey and then um, 
Emily, bless her heart, she gets um, into a pretty sticky situation and she is uh, held captive by a guy named Jim and he uh, duct tapes her to a chair and it is quite an escape, my friends. It is... Oh, it is a thrill ride. It is a thrill ride how Emily gets out and just the sort of the physical toll her body takes of escaping Jim's captivity. And it is a lot of duct tape. Um, the second story that really uh, provides that extreme physical is called Stationary Bike, which I immediately went to <laughs> a very crazed, um, imaginative ending right before I even started the story. Um, and so Richard Sifkis, he's a kind of middle-aged guy. He gets a really bad cholesterol report and decides to start chipping away at some fitness. So he gets a stationary bike and basically becomes a little bit of a physical slash mental slave to the bike where I'll explain more about that uh, in our later sections because stationary bike is one of the stories I did have a little bit of problems with toward the end. First part is stellar but uh, Richard becomes quite addicted physically and mentally to the stationary bike where he will ride for hours and hours. I think that he has an alarm clock to keep him from, you know, staying on it all night. An alarm clock that kind of shocks him back to reality. So he will ride on that bike minimum two hours a day. I think there's even more at some point. So a lot of extreme physical things happening. Um, in the story Rest Stop, we actually have a very violent sort of physical abuse happening in a rest stop bathroom. Um, I'm also going to talk more about that story in greater detail in our next section, but that one has some pretty visceral descriptions of, of the body parts being, you you know, wounded and it's pretty intense. So we've actually got uh, a punch up at a rest stop bathroom in Florida, as well as, um, yeah, some, uh, some protective, uh, instinctive, more beating to a pulp. Um, so that one, uh, again, a lot of, a lot of physical abuse in that one. Um, a very tight place is our last story in the collection. And <laughs> my gosh, you guys, I have so many thoughts on that one. If you've read the story, just let out that laugh with me because this one is a doozy and I don't even know how to, I'll get there. But this one is, um, well, the physical intensity of it is the fact that we have somebody trapped in a very literal type place. Um, it's a porter potty. Yes. And <laughs> the porter potty gets tipped over. So, um, as you can imagine, listeners, it is as grotesque as you can believe. Um, but not only is it just all kinds of gross and 10,000 ways of disgusting, um, he's trapped and could find. And the only way to get out is the worst way your mind could imagine. Because Stephen King likes to uh, make us afraid of what he's afraid of. And he makes it a pretty harrowing and uh, unbelievable tale of escape but that one there's a lot of very 
intense description of how our protagonist Curtis Johnson escapes the tipped over locked porter potty. It is I am speechless. <laughs> We're going to talk about that one a little bit more because oh my goodness, my 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 listeners, my goodness. And then the last one um that's just extreme physical in your face is My Cat from Hell, which is a brutal animal attack, guys. That's just brutal with a capital B. It is Wow, it's very violent with this animal attack. Lots of blood, lots of gore, and uh, the fur is literally flying. So, um, so yeah, we've got we've got some intense stories that really allow the physical body to be. Um, to be wrecked a little bit like we really put the body through a lot so if you're someone who's a little bit squeamish with body stuff this one is a little bit of a roller coaster ride this collection we encounter a lot of intense stuff thankfully in this collection we don't have a lot of sort of sexual any sort of creepy stuff um because we, we we're gonna have one or two of those coming up in one of the next collections that I can think of. If you guys have read Big Driver, that one's coming up in Full Dark No Stars. That one's pretty intense. Um, but thankfully, even though there's a lot of physical being put through the ringer, um, it's it's tame in a lot of ways. Um, minus Gingerbread Girl. Gingerbread Girl was just nuts. That one was a thrill ride and suspense from start to finish. So, um, so those are my two. Those are the ones that I had other categories, but I scrapped them because I just didn't feel I had enough um, support for them. But these two, I think, are really what I feel are highlighting the unique areas of the collection and. Um, sort of these identifiable zones that I was noticing as the stories were um, were uh, coming up to the surface. So my last sort of area is I mentioned how crazy I am about Harvey's dream and guys this story is fantastic. I really would like you all to read it. It's less than 10 pages if you can get your hands on a PDF or get your hands on this collection in general because it's wonderful. Um, but Harvey's dream is in less than 10 pages. It is just a, it's electric, you guys. It's electric, just the writing and the transitions and it, we've got some stellar stuff going on. So I'm actually going to read you about two pages from it because I'm so in love with it and I really want to share it with you. But a quick synopsis is we have uh, an somewhat unhappily married middle-aged couple, Janet and Harvey Stevens. It's Saturday morning, they're in the kitchen, they're kind of getting some breakfast going, and Janet's in her own head, she's making lunch for the day, and Harvey is sort of in the kitchen in his boxers and sort of shuffling around, but he's telling Janet how he had a terrible nightmare, and he actually screamed himself awake, which is a direct quote. And so I'd like to read you a page from uh, 86 in the American hardcover, and then I'm going to skip over to 91 and just listen to sort of the language and uh, in this on this page, listen for the 
the tense change he goes from third person to second person and usually that's a no-no in writing in general but he does it and it's seamless and it's beautiful so i just want you to listen to the coolness of this story and i'm not going to reveal too much but i'll talk a little bit more after i read the second page so this is in the american hardcover on page 86. god she hopes she's wrong it makes life seem so thin, so stupid somehow. She can't help wondering if this is what they fought through for, raised and married off their three girls for, got past his inevitable middle-aged affair for, worked for, and sometimes, let's face it, grabbed for. If this is where you come out of the deep dark woods, Janet thinks, this, this parking lot, then why does anyone do it? But the answer is easy, because you didn't know. You discarded most of the lies along the way, but held on to the one that said life mattered. You kept a scrapbook devoted to the girls, and in it they were still young and still interesting in their possibilities. Trisha, the eldest, wearing a top hat and waving a tinfoil wand over Tim, the cocker spaniel. Jenna, frozen in mid-jump halfway through the lawn sprinkler, her taste for dope, credit cards, and older men still far over the horizon. Stephanie the youngest at the county spelling bee, where cantaloupe turned out to be her waterloo. Somewhere in most of these pictures, usually in the background, were Janet and the man she had married, always smiling as if it were against the law to do anything else. Then one day you made the mistake of looking over your shoulder and discovered that the girls were grown and that the man you would struggle to stay married to was sitting with his legs apart, his fish-white legs, staring into a bar of sun, and by God, maybe he looked 54 in either of his best suits, but sitting there at the kitchen table like that, he looked 70, hell, 75. He looked like what the goons on The Sopranos called a mope. She turns back to the sink and sneezes delicately once, twice, a third time. So hang on with me for just one more page. This is my favorite one and this is at the bottom of 90 and most of 91. And then the phone rang. I dashed for it because I didn't want to wake you up and here comes the scary part. Do you want to hear the scary part? No, she thinks from her place by the sink. I don't want to hear the scary part. But at the same time, she does want to hear the scary part. Everyone wants to hear the scary part. We're all mad here, and her mother really did say that if you told your dreams, they wouldn't come true, which meant you were supposed to tell the nightmares and save the good ones for yourself, hide them like a tooth under the pillow. They have three girls. One of them lives just down the road. Jenna, the gay divorcee, same name as one of the Bush twins, and doesn't Jenna hate that? These days, she insists that people just call her Jen. Three girls, which meant a lot of teeth under a lot of pillows, a lot of worries about strangers and cars offering rides and candy, which had meant a lot of precautions, and oh how she hopes her mother was right, that telling a bad dream is like putting a stake in a vampire's heart. I picked up the phone, Harvey says, and it was Trisha. Trisha is their oldest daughter, who idolized Houdini and Blackstone before discovering boys. She only said one word at first, just dad but i knew it was trisha you know how you always know yes she knows how you always know how you always know your own from the very first word at least until they grow up and become someone else's i said hi trish why are you calling so early hun your mom's still in the sack 
And at first there was no answer. I thought we'd been cut off, and then I heard these whispering, whimpering sounds. Not words, but half-words. Like she was trying to talk, but hardly anything could come out because she wasn't able to muster any strength or get her breath. And that was when I started being afraid. <laughs> As I clap. Um, I loved Harvey's Dream, guys. So good. I actually am going to uh, link the PDF to my classroom because it's it's fire it's just uh there's a spooky ending but it's ambiguous it's mysterious it's a little bit about dreams it's a little bit about the worst darkest moments if we had a way to know they were going to happen ahead of time uh about regret and aging and all kinds of interesting stuff in such a small amount of space and i think it's a really awesome story to just look at what Mr. King is capable of, and I think that literary magazine editors would drool all over the floor if they were uh, had the opportunity to publish something like that. So that one is truly one of my favorites. I super enjoyed it, um, and uh, we only have one other story in the collection that deals with dreams and kind of a haunting quality, and one other story that um, King calls it diction over substance, rather um, diction over fiction, I think is the direct quote. But what's cool about Harvey's dream is he says in the author's notes, he had a dream about this story and he woke up and he wrote it in one sitting. And to me, that is glorious because it reads so sharp and effective and sexy. And I know I keep using that word sexy and it's not, doesn't really necessarily have anything to do with sex being in the story or something sexy. It's just when something is working, when something is just unapologetically working, that's sexy to me. So um, if you do get the chance, if you are remotely interested in this collection, I recommend just give yourself a little bit of a really tasty first sample with Harvey's Dream. See if you like it. Might not be your cup of tea. You might want to head straight for Gingerbread Girl, which is, which is a ride, ladies and gentlemen. So Let's go ahead and transition to some of the um, more meatier parts of our discussion here, and I'm going to talk about what's really working in this collection, as in some of my favorites. We'll talk about why they're successful, and then we'll also highlight the stories where I was left wanting a little bit more. So this is my section, what's working and what's not. And when I started writing down my favorites and my picks that didn't quite make the mark, I noticed I had about three and three. So we're actually going to start with my negative Nancy's. These are my um, picks where I had a couple problems with them and I just wanted to share, uh, maybe dig into what's going on with these and why they didn't really uh, shine as bright as they would have liked. So the first one I'd like to um, 
to talk about is a rest stop. I mentioned this a little bit in the last section, but uh, in the author notes, Stephen King talks about that this story was greatly influenced by real life events where he was attending a um, some sort of author meeting in Florida and driving home late one night and had to pee really bad, gets out at a rest stop and overhears someone in the ladies room. It's a very, very heated exchange, almost to the point of getting physical. And so Stephen King really had to kind of ask himself, what do I do? Like, what what would I have done if it started to get physical? Um, so the story he creates is in the same vein of there's a teacher from Florida State, his name is John Dykstra, and he too uh, really has to pee, gets out, of the, out at the rest stop, and this time, of course, the violence is ramped up a little bit where a woman is being beaten in the um, ladies room by her significant other so it's it's intense it's violent there's a lot of heated verbal abuse in addition to that and so what's puzzling about this story is that I'm really left wanting more because what Stephen King does in this story is with the character of John Dykstra he is a suspense author in addition to being a teacher at Florida State and his alternate personality or he keeps mentioning this person named Rick Harden. And so Rick Harden is actually the one who sort of steps in and beats the guy's ass. So basically what happens in this story is we have Jekyll and Hyde. We absolutely have Jekyll and Hyde and it's so cool because it's it's all of a sudden, you know, John Dykstra's really um, revealing himself to be a coward in the moment. But then he kind of asks himself, what would Rick Harden do? And then all of a sudden this physical person who is John Dykstra, but it is um, Rick Harden sort of grabs the guy, um, kicks him around, breaks his glasses, um, makes the woman drive off without him, and kind of saves the day. But then the way it's handled is so underdone. It's just undercooked. There's not enough. And so this is a short story where I'm left a little bit upset and definitely unsatisfied because he introduced a very, very big menu item and never delivered on that menu item. So um, right off the bat in the narration, we get this description or this teasing of whoever Rick Harden is. And so I was like, oh my gosh, Jekyll and Hyde, this is awesome. I'm ready. I'm ready for this um, Jekyll and Hyde. And we see it play out a little bit, but it's very disconnected, and it seems as though John Dykstra really has no idea that there's this alternate personality, or if it even is an alternate personality, it's just so vague, I can't, it's hard to say. And so the vagueness was disappointing, it it ends way too soon, I was just left wanting more, because um, I think this was one where he needed more runway, we needed more content, and we just don't have enough in order for it to be satisfying. Which is unfortunate, because I feel some of the stories, like our fabulous um, 
<laughs> poop explosion story um, toward the end, which is a very tight place, goes on for way too damn long. And if we could have edited that and given more runway to rest stop, I would have really enjoyed that. So the Jekyll and Hyde motif is present. It's there. We get this sort of electric little charge of that uh, going to occur in the narrative. And then unfortunately, at least in my opinion, I don't feel it delivers. Um, so the second story, and this one's a little bit of a strong opinion, the second story I have is called Graduation Afternoon. And in the author's notes, um, Stephen King says that this story kind of was born uh, post-Elysi's story in 2006, and he's very candid in his explanation where he says he was taking an antidepressant called doxepin, which was helping with some of the uh, painful sort of mental emotional effects of being in chronic pain since his accident. So uh, right around 2006 he was kind of ready to uh, get off of it and I think if I remember correctly he did mention he went cold turkey and just stopped taking this medicine and had some really bizarre effects in terms of dreams and these long panning shots in his imagination of um, just landscapes and scenery and one of them was a giant mushroom cloud over New York City. And so this is a really short little story, another one that he claims is more diction rather than fiction, but I just, in my opinion, I think the whole thing needs to be scrapped. And that's strong. It's a strong statement, I realize that, but it doesn't make any sense. We have a young girl, a young teenage girl, and she's seemingly at some sort of garden party in the Hamptons or some sort of elite, maybe Long Island location where she's going to graduate in a few days and she's there's a little bit of narration about interest in boys and maybe blossoming sexuality and, and then all of a sudden there's a mushroom cloud over New York City and there's some sort of cataclysmic event that has occurred. So then um, there's very little else that happens. There's just this event and everyone's staring at this mushroom cloud over New York. And then I really can't recall anything else happening. It The narrative just goes away and drops off. So I, I don't know what's going on with that. I don't know if it's just this little flash in a pan, you know, creepy visual um, little glimpse. I don't know if it's just meant to be like a glimpse or what. But I was just, you know, I, I read it and I was like, and question mark um, and so that's never fun that I, I no one really likes to feel like they've missed something or um, but it, it unlike with Harvey's dream we have so much um, beautiful writing to sort of anchor us even if people may or some reader readers may feel that Harvey's dream drops off a little too quickly but graduation afternoon for me it should have been scrapped it absolutely shouldn't have been in this collection because I don't get it guys I don't get it and I would absolutely love to hear from you if if you guys get it or if I'm missing something or if it is just sort of this random glimpse of a moment of potentially a story but it's more or less just this cerebral sort of psychedelic 
vision is how it reads and there's no narrative content to anchor it at all. So that one for me, I'm just like, excuse me, editors, please, please do your job. Like this is, I don't get it, but I'm sure it would be really hard to be Stephen King's editor. I mean, I would never ever edit. <laughs> I would just let him do whatever he wants because that's what you do with Kings. You let them have their way. So. Um, yeah, that one needed to be scrapped 100%. Maybe we'll revisit that thought um, in my final um, concluding thoughts of the episode. Um, but for now, I just, I don't get it. Um, and then my third one that I did have a couple problems with, I mentioned this one a little bit, is Stationary Bike. And this one started off so promising for me, guys, because it's got all my favorite things. Firstly, our main narrator, Richard Sifkis, is a freelance artist, so he's a painter. My favorite, because I love when Stephen King incorporates painting. It is that gothic touch that I adore. Um, I talk a lot about that in our last collection, Everything's Eventual, but he's a painter so we get some beautiful descriptions of some of the paintings that he's working on and mostly what he paints is for advertising campaigns and that's how he makes his money but he's so bored on the stationary bike that he decides to paint himself a world so he decides to paint a road and a forest and he puts the painting in front of the stationary bike and imagines he's on a forest trail and very quickly uh, the narration takes us into that magical realism where all of a sudden he is on that road and it's actually a road uh, heading north on New York on the way to Canada, a place called Herkimer. And he's pedaling and we can smell the forest, we can hear the crackling gravel under the tires. It's incredibly well described and powerful. But toward the latter half of this story, um, what happens is Richard paints a road crew. He paints some people into the painting. Um, this road crew is a metaphor that the doctor gave him for sort of his bloodstream and the cholesterol and lipids in his blood, triglycerides. And so he imagines that there's a physical road crew sort of working to clear his arteries and he's making the job really hard for them with his poor diet and lack of exercise. So then the narrative takes a very sharp, odd path where rather than stay on the path of Richard's sort of psychic, magical realism transportation from his stationary, bar stationary bike in his New York apartment to this forest path on the way to Canada, we start investigating the lives of the non-existent road crew where one of them has killed themselves because the road crew members have been fired due to the fact that Richard is now taking care of himself, so they're not needed to clear the road. So it just goes down this path that is very perplexing and the road crew starts to get angry because they don't have a job anymore, so they start to hunt down Richard on his bike in their truck. and. I just disagree so much, friends. I just was like, WTF, what? Um, I just couldn't really enjoy it at that 
point. At that point, when I saw the direction that that was taking, I'm like, okay, this is not cool anymore. This is just bizarre in a bad way. And that's how I felt. Um, Because I don't care. I don't care about this metaphor. I find it strange and I don't it's odd, it's odd, and I was so much more enjoying the, um, I think that he could have kept that darkness, um, but just not made it about the road crew, about these hypothetical men. He could have definitely continued with the magical realism of transporting himself to a road in Canada, to where he actually was leaving his, his, uh, apartment, and he was on this road. I think he could have gone a dozen different directions that would have kept the spookiness, that would have kept the mystery, that would have kept, you know, the stationary bikeness of it all. But the tangent that it takes in this in the third act of the story is just I just shake my head. I shake my head, listeners, because I I couldn't get on board. Like he lost me at that point. And and that was hard because I enjoyed the journey so much, but um, unfortunately, I just would have loved to edit this story and maybe make it a bit tighter where maybe, you know, Richard really could have been run down by a vehicle, but, you know, do something with the space-time continuum or something with that rather than a vengeful hypothetical group of men that have really nothing to do with, um, with Richard at all because it's just a stupid metaphor so um I would really love to know your thoughts on those um because I I'm all about giving them second and third chances but for me the just the tone and the strangeness started to overwhelm the good parts very much like a balance beam or not a balance beam but a balance what do they call a scale (laughs) there we go um the scale started to tip in the wrong direction for me on stationary bike to where i just couldn't reconcile the narrative so um those are those are my little problem children those are my my little the ones that I just uh, needed, I, I would like them to be edited a little bit. I would love to edit them, actually. So uh, those are those are my problem, children, and I would love to hear your thoughts on those as well. Um, but for uh, until then, let's go ahead and talk about the stars. Let's talk about the gems. So you already know about one of them. I extensively kind of um, nerded out to Harvey's dream, so I'm only going to talk about the other two that shined super bright for me and just uh, sparkled. So one of them is, um, well, before I talk about which ones I chose, as I mentioned previously, I know for me personally, I don't know if it's the same with you guys, but for me personally, when I read a short story, I'm always, I'm looking at a zillion different things. I'm looking at structure and character and dialogue and plot and language and and syntax and all the things. I'm just going down a zillion different directions. But I know it's worked or it's working when after the story is over, I'm still thinking about it. Um, And that to me is the mark that I strive for when I'm reading these collections. So Harvey's Dream, I most definitely felt that way. And then the second one that really grabbed me was this very dialogue-heavy, cool story called Mute. And Mute is about a 
55-year-old sort of traveling salesman named Manette, which is kind of a cool name, M-O-N-E-T-T-E. And the structure of this story I really enjoyed because right off the, right at the start, we learn that Manette is in a confessional with a priest. And then the second sort of structured area of the story is he is recalling giving a ride to a transient who has a cardboard sign attached to him saying, I am a deaf mute. And so he gives this guy a ride and tells him because he just feels really comfortable. Um, basically the present woes of his relationship. So Manette has been married to a really long time to, let's see if I wrote down his wife's name. I don't know if I did. Um, but his wife is a real doozy and she embezzled over $120,000 from the school district she worked with. And not only that, she's been having an affair on him for two years with some guy named Cowboy Bob. And then with the money she's embezzling or has embezzled, she's been buying lottery tickets with that money, trying to win it back. And then at the time when Monette picks up this guy who doesn't speak and is seemingly deaf, she hasn't, he, Manette has not seen his wife for two weeks. So he tells this hitchhiking guy everything and then at the same time he's relaying to the priest what happened. Um, without revealing the ending, which is so enjoyable. Um, the dialogue is fantastic. It's mostly all dialogue, which is I love. But let's just say that Hitchhiker is more than what he seems. And I'm going to mention a little bit more on that in our next section. But I loved it. And I really was left thinking about it long after the story was done because I thought it was really well done, well constructed. Um, it's a satisfying conclusion that... Um, really creates a, a, a very cool final thought for the for the reader. So um, Mute was a lot of fun and apparently it really happened. Uh, Stephen King in the author notes mentioned that he read in his local newspaper about someone embezzling over 60 grand from a school district to buy lotto tickets and he really wanted to know what her husband would have thought about all that. So I really enjoyed that one. Um, that one shined, uh, um, burned really bright for me. And then the last one that's definitely the crowning glory, I think, of this collection, um, this one is... So cool, guys. Um, so the the story that's definitely taking the cake in this collection for me is called N. It's just N, the letter N, as in nuclear, as in Nancy. However you wanna, um, whatever N word you like, um, mi minus the terrible N word there. But uh, the letter N. And so this one is asking the reader the question what if madness was contagious? What if OCD was something external and supernatural? Which is a very, very cool concept um, that I really enjoyed in this story. So a quick synopsis of what N is about is we have Dr. John Bon Saint. He's counseling a patient named N, and he's just referring to him as N in his uh, patient notes. And N, ever since going to a field 
called Ackerman's Field in Mountain, which is next to Chester's Mill from Under the Dome. More on that in just a little bit. N has had um, quite a mental transformation in terms of intense OCD. Um, uh, compulsive counting, touching, placing, arranging, and so it's basically developed ever since he went to this field. What's in this field, as the reader learns, is a Stonehenge-esque sort of monolith gathering where there's some stones. There's eight of them, but then sometimes there's seven, and it's very mysterious, it's very creepy, but the best way to describe what's in Ackerman's field is a thin zone. I know that in Dark Tower and some of the other more cerebral sci-fi, um, bendy Stephen King stories, the thin zones where reality and portals, potentially other dimensions, are present, um, is prevalent. And so this field, I believe, is a thin zone, very much like actual locations on the planet such as the Bermuda Triangle and Glastonbury, England and Sedona, Arizona. These are sort of hot spot thin zones where they believe, you know, reality, time, and space could potentially be bent a little bit. So some really interesting concepts here, but I think what's so cool about this story, guys, I think what makes it a knockout performance for me is the epistolary structure. The entire thing is brought to the reader in letters and notes and emails and this is the kind of structure that carries me from the first sentence. And that's how I felt when I read N for the first time. I just felt taken and instantly swept away. And that's magic. That's that unique book magic that happens. The curiosity and the interest was just so strong from moment one. And I think it's because the story does begin with... Um, ends, oh no, it's Dr. John's sister, Sheila. Sheila LeClaire is writing to uh, a childhood friend named Charlie, and so she's writing about Dr. Bonsaint's suicide. She's writing about it. Then we have Dr. John B.'s patient notes and his session recordings with N. So we're hearing his thoughts, we're hearing his ideas, and then we're learning about N through that. After what happens to N sort of subsides in the second half of the story, we have Dr. John's personal observation notes, we have Charlie's email, and so this whole story is revealed in this epistolary style, and it's fantastic. And also, what I was so thrilled to see, and it just made me super excited, there. this story has a very strong connection to Under the Dome. So if you've recently read Under the Dome, I highly recommend reading this short story, guys. It's going to be a real treat, mostly because the very last, well, second to last, um, uh, textual chunk of this story is an article by Julia Shumway, and Julia is in Under the Dome. And so it's an article that she wrote being the town journalist for the Chester's Mill Democrat, which is the publication. So it was awesome. It was awesome to see that. And 
Also, it was not revealing too, too much about what's actually in the field, but the ending of Under the Dome, as well as what's revealed in the field, share a connection as well. So I was thrilled. I love to see that. It was really rewarding to read um, the short story N and then know uh, what's following with Chester's Mill. So um, this, of, this collection was published in 2008, and then we've got... Um, under the Dome in 2009. So we've got a little bit of really fun bleed over or seepage. So N is an absolute star child, very cool, very uh, cerebral when we're looking at the concept of obsessive compulsive disorder and what if it was something that really is used slash needed for protection. So really strange concepts, really creepy, cool narrative doom as we see in a lot of Stephen King stories when the walls seem to close in on these characters and the approaching doom is on its way. That was really cool to see, especially with John, uh, Dr. John Bon Saint's notes. It has a little bit of the vibe from our last short story collection, uh, if you guys remember 1408 with Mike Enslin's tape recordings. Once he's inside 1408, the sort of uh, the sounds of doom or the notes of doom or um, all of those, those creepy um, examples of reality dissolving around you. So truly cool. The structure is what made it such a star for me. So that rounds out um, my my three, my three that fell a little flat for me and then my three stars. So let's go ahead and um, look at uh, some characters and my concluding thoughts on this collection just after sunset. My final investigation in our Just After Sunset coverage today are a few characters that stood out and just jumped off the page for me. And coincidentally, I have one for each category, hero, villain, and honorable mention. So my hero is Emily Owensby from The Gingerbread Girl. And I really enjoyed her story. And she in general is just a strong female. She's a survivor. And overall, her story coincidentally ties in with my own life only due to the fact that I too have started running in the last couple months and so her being a runner facing the untimely death of her infant daughter, her marriage is dissolving, basically her world is falling apart and she starts running and that's something that I started to do recently and so I was able to identify with Miss Emily pretty quickly here, which uh, her running and that physical nature of how she tries to clear her mind was very timely and very cool. So I enjoyed not only where running took her, but how it prepared her for an even more difficult situation that happens in the latter part of the story. Um, her story, The Gingerbread Girl, is a really intense thrill ride. It's pretty violent and um, if you're really looking for a 
uh, intense experience, the gingerbread girl really surprised me. I thought I had it figured out in the first half, and then the second half, I was, uh, it was a nail biter, guys, and uh, it's definitely suspenseful, a little bit violent, and very um, reminiscent of Lisey's story. As I mentioned previously, our bad guy is named Jim, and I definitely thought of Lisey's story mostly because in the audiobook, Mare Winningham reads this story, and she is our Lisey's story narrator for that audiobook, so all kinds of similarities, and um, overall it just felt really good to see this lady overcome and triumph and run for her very life, quite literally, and it was a really powerful story, and she's a survivor, she's really badass, and she doesn't give up, and those are always worth uh, mentioning as in the hero category for sure. So Emily is my hero. My honorable mention um, is Stanley Doucette, aka our deaf mute picked up by Manette somewhere outside of Maine on the way to Derry. So he is our deaf mute. And why he is an honorable mention for me is just his mystery. He essentially says nothing in our story. We He barely even indicates that he can read lips. He's really on the page for a very short amount of time, but it's the fact that Mr. King makes Stanley Doucette a un... un... well, he's a, he's a ratio of good and evil, and you as the viewer don't really know which what the ratio is, you just know it's there. We've got a little bit of good and a little bit of evil, and that always makes for a good villain. Um, but I don't classify him as a villain. I'm really not. Um, he's a mystery man, and I want to know more about him. And that was a powerful character to introduce and pique my interest. And he accomplished just enough to make himself very memorable and stand out quite a bit, despite having such a short presence on the page and not saying anything. So he's super intriguing. So T Stanley Doucette, aka our deaf mute is uh, a real cool one and I would really like to know what you guys think about him. For my villain, I have decided to choose. Um, there was a couple villains that um, vied for the top spot, but overall I enjoyed this villain the most, and that is Tim Grunwald, or Grunwald, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, from A Very Tight Place. So he is a very rageful, old Florida real estate tycoon, and he's taking revenge on his neighbor and fellow real estate tycoon, Curtis Johnson. He lures him to an isolated construction site and forces him at gunpoint into a porta potty, locks it, and tips it over. And it's it's absurd, guys. He's absolutely nuts. Um, he's been receiving chemotherapy treatment, so he's just full of disease, and he's a hot mess in general. But what made Tim Grunwald get my top spot is he's such a nutball maniac in a way that's not very sinister or intimidating or repelling. Um, you know, he's not like the serial killer that we see in Gingerbread Girl or some of the other villains who are really violent and creepy. He's just a crazy old man. He's a really psycho man who's just, you know, the 
he lost the plot and he's just absolutely bonkers and so when we meet him on the page must most of his ranting outside the porter pony is quite hysterical i mean firstly we must discuss how a very tight place is just ridiculous and hysterical in its own right but um i encourage that tim grunwald be viewed as a villain and he's funny guys like the story itself is just I, I'm speechless. Like, I have no words. Um, so, the, in general, it's it's a crazy story, and I'll talk more about that in a second. But Tim is a ranting, crazy person, but it's kind of in a harmless way, minus the gunpoint. There, it, you, he uses that gun very much like a prop he's very uncomfortable with. You could tell he's not really a bad guy. He's just like a kind of cranky guy who's a bit of an asshole, and... He, I, I don't know, it's kind of hard to pinpoint, but he doesn't strike me as the creepy, violent, very sinister, evil guys that we encounter. He's no Jim Rennie, that's for sure. But he is a, a nutball kind of ranting old Florida lunatic. And um, he's funny. And so his rantings outside of the porter potty to Curtis are are pretty hysterical. So he's a comedic villain who brought a lot of hilarity and just shock to my reading experience. But in general, a side note for a very tight place. So this story is beyond ridiculous. And to quote Liz R, it's very much written for a 10 year old boy. And unfortunately, not to reveal too much about myself, but Unfortunately, I have an inner 10-year-old boy in me, mostly because I was raised with brothers and my dad used to call us, you know, my three sons, so a toilet humor is always welcome in my life. I feel like I'm just a, an eternal third grader. So for me, I laughed a lot at this story to my everlasting shame, but I also gagged and coughed quite a bit because it's disgusting. Um, it's gross. It's it's so nasty, and but it's also hysterical if that little ten-year-old is alive inside of you, and if you laugh at toilet humor, you will enjoy the story. But this is such a perplexing one because Stephen King talks about visiting a porter potty at a rest stop and and or a gas station, and just the what if, the what if gross factor, and. It's absurd, it's ridiculous, this story goes on way too long, way too long. It definitely should have been edited down, but it is it is fun. The conclusion is lighthearted despite everything. It's, it's absurd, it's ridiculous. I laughed, I gagged. Um, I, I really can't say much, I, but I didn't hate it. That's the thing, I didn't hate it. It is what it is, it's silly. It's, it's Stephen King showing that he could just be silly and, um, and be gross and kind of let all of us connect with his inner 10-year-old boy, potentially. Um, so it's childish fun, and that's his direct quote from the back of the book, is childish fun. Um, so, uh, yeah, Mr. Tim is Tim Grunwald from 
the, our porter potty story is my villain. So those are my three guys. Not too many characters, mostly because um, this is a short story collection, as I've mentioned before. There's not a ton of screen time for them, but um, Emily and is a delight. As is Stanley, very cool, mysterious character. And then Tim is brings the laughs. So those are my characters. And my final thoughts on this collection is that I highly recommend, of course. Um, I think I would recommend this one a little bit more than Everything's Eventual. Everything's, uh, Everything's Eventual does have some incredible standout stories that I mentioned in episode, I forget which one, episode 10? I don't remember. But, um, so you can hear my, my suggestions for that, but I think this is a more cohesive collection where we really have those themes of loss and death and the afterlife, uh, handled in a very cool experimental way. And then we also have that physical body ex extremity where we're just on uh, an absolute roller coaster when it comes to the human body, which if you're into sensory writing and uh, you want a little bit of a mixed bag, a little bit of gore, a little bit of exercise intensity, you, this is a fun collection. It's a fun one to engage with and taste all of these sample stories um, and get a really good sense of Mr. King really writing with intention because I believe that's what was accomplished here is he had it in his mind to plug into the short story form and he delivered for the most part. I think the only complaints I have, as I made, might have delicately mentioned previously, there are some stories that needed to be shorter and others that needed to be longer, but all of them have amazing potential and really great premises and solid dialogue. There's a lot working in here, and there's only one um, that I would really scrap. However, if he maybe would have added more content to it, I might not feel that way. So I actually recommend this collection to be read before everything's eventual. I, I think there's a little bit more substance here. Um, and it's uh, it's nice to read these stories um, as sort of separate little nuggets of, of King really flexing his muscles. So I highly recommend as uh, also to plug that if you have read Under the Dome recently, reading N is a real treat. It's always nice to have uh, some characters or some description um, or a location pop up. I think that's why everyone likes Castle Rock so much. Speaking of, something I did forget to mention, N, the short story, really reminds me a lot of Castle Rock season one. Um, the mysterious field, Ackerman's field, is I think they may have very well used this short story as inspiration for some of the things they were doing in season one. In season one, Henry Deaver's father often retreats into the forest because he hears a mysterious sound. He becomes obsessed with the sound, which we explore later as viewers as something called the schisma, which is kind of like a white noise, but it's also a white noise that swallows your brain a little bit and you feel like everything is revealed. Also in that forest is when we see that thin place where time and other dimensions are sort of colliding a little bit. Um, in season two, uh, Salem's Lot is built on a colony of witches and witchcraft and so we do see one of those witches, if not the main one, um, in season one in the forest. So the, the mystery 
history of Ackerman's Field and the monoliths and the stones, well, I don't know if I would say monoliths. Monoliths is more tall, huh? Stones. We'll call them stones, but my, in my imagination, they were slightly monolithic. But the stones in Ackerman's Field and the visions they conjure and the madness it conjures really reminds me of Castle Rock Season 1. So if you read N, enjoy all of the Under the Dome connections. There are several. And then what you could do to keep up with that mysterious, creepy forest vibe, watch Castle Rock Season 1. Um, it really channels a lot of that, especially by like episode 5 is when you'll start to hear a lot about the forest and we see some really bizarre cutscenes and insertions and some crazy stuff happening in the forest as well as the sound of the schisma which is all kinds of cool and strange so n is i think closely might have closely inspired it i i drew a lot of connections so um we have three stories in this collection that are all based in Florida. We've got three Florida citizens, a very tight place, rest stop, and gingerbread girl are all Florida natives. So um, I think they are a perfect segue into our next novel, which is Duma Key. I'm so excited for Duma Key, guys. So that is going to be our episode 14, potentially 15. Not sure. We might have some mysterious topics squeak in there, but Duma Key is uh, we're starting summer a little bit early because I want to go to the beach. I can't go in real life, so we're going to go in book life. Um, Duma Key, in, in two words, is uh, beach goth. That's what I'm going to call it, beach goth. That's the genre. It's, I never knew that the beach could be goth, but he does. He does it. He makes it work. It is an awesome, underrated novel, and I really hope that... Um, it kind of gets out of the underrated category, and I really have observed several readers discovering it and falling in love with it, so I'm here to spread that fire and fan those flames a little more because, oh man, Duma Key is special, and it's it's awesome. So we've got a couple Florida tales that are going to lead us perfectly into Duma Key when we're going to hang out with Edgar and Wireman and the beach and, oh man, all the crazy shenanigans that are going to unfold. I cannot wait to talk about that novel with you guys. It's a treat. So get your sunscreen, get your beach towel, get your shades, get your copy of Duma Key, and meet me in our next episode. So as usual, I always want to hear from you guys on anything I've covered in this episode please reach out on to me at underratedsk at gmail. You can also find us on social media as well if you're more comfortable with that. Um, I would love to hear from you in regards to any suggestions or thoughts on the story. Um, I always love gaining additional perspective. Um, my friend Liz R helps a great deal, but I would love for you guys to step in and shine some light on some of these stories. Uh, what did they do for you? What did you love? What did you not love? Are we on the same page? Do I need to give them a second read? I am all ears. I'm looking forward to hearing from you and uh, looking forward to reading with you in Duma Key. So take care. Thank you so very much for listening and I'll see you soon. Okay, bye.